when I started waking up to the fact that it was all about team. It was all about my ability to be empathetic, to give other people power, not keep it for myself. That's when success came, but it was at a price. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to totally change direction? My guest today, Mark Little, did just that. After 20 years in broadcasting, Mark made a courageous decision to turn his attention to business. He found it storyful in 2010 and within just three years had successfully sold it to Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. He then joined the leadership team at Twitter before setting up Kinzen in 2017 with co-founder Onya Kerr. Mark has earned a reputation for his ability to communicate. He is candid and open about the highs and lows of growing a successful business and not shy of sharing his opinions has made Mark a sought after speaker and commentator. Mark Little, you're very welcome to the B-Side podcast. Thanks for having me, Francis. It's my first experience out and about um, post-COVID, so this is this is great. I know, great it's great person. not to be sitting at home, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and to see you. Exactly. Not but we are two metres apart, which is good. <laughs> Uh, so, Mark, I'm going to go going to go back a little bit. I want to take you back to your transition from the safety net of national broadcaster RTE. After 20 years, you volunteered for uncertainty. Yeah, and I remember at the time, it was only in retrospect, some of my friends came to me later and said, you know, we were thinking of staging an intervention because we thought you were having a nervous breakdown. Like I was, I was 39, so it was midlife crisis. Some people go off and buy themselves a boat or a yacht if they can afford it. I decided to take this leap. And I think in retrospect, looking back into it, it was very rash. Like I was taking a decision based on emotion, which was I got to a point in my career where I was getting frustrated because I was reporting on all the great big, at the moment, at the time it was the economic crisis. Mm -hmm. So I was the one sitting there refereeing these conversations and it was very ineffectual. And I was also a foreign correspondent. So I would travel away to describe things happening, never part of the change. And so I remember sitting down over a period of two years and, and the reality was I'd had a serious ski accident and I had this moment of mortality. Okay. I was skiing in Italy three days before being sent to my most dangerous assignment in Iraq. Yeah. And what got me was hitting the mogul and breaking my knee and spending weeks in hospital. And that made me think, well, wait a minute, I'm actually mortal. So I looked forward and I said to myself, am I going to do this forever, just being the referee, the person describing something or... Is there something that I could do to change the way journalism at the time was being uh, was being developed? And I had the idea for going out into social media. I'd fallen in love with Twitter. And I said, what if we started a news agency from scratch on social media mm. with all these real people, not gatekeepers or journalists, but real people witnessing history and help them tell the story? And that became like an infection, a virus. Yeah. And then finally I said, I've got to do it. I can't look forward 20 years and go, why didn't I? But when I jumped, it was very rash. It was, didn't think it through properly. The first day in my new office in an accelerator in Dublin, I went up to the whiteboard to do the business plan <clears throat> in permanent marker and then spent the rest of the afternoon trying to rub it off. So I was so naive. So we can go back and find those goals and objectives, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly. They're still, they're still there. Somewhere. <laughs> so, I mean... Would you call yourself a crazy dreamer? Well, it's funny you say that because I remember in the States, I, I picked up a certain can-do spirit and was Washington correspondent. In 1997, you may remember Steve Jobs was launching, uh, was, it was the Macintosh was coming into mass consumption. And he had this ad on, on TV, the crazy ones. 
and he was celebrating the role of the crazy visionaries, the mm. Picassos, and people like him, I suppose, as well, who were the real sources of innovation. The real change makers were the crazy, individual, charismatic loners uh, who everybody thought were, you know, just nuts. And I kind of got affected by that idea. And I felt like when I went into story from the beginning, that's what was a great entrepreneur. That was what was a great innovator. Don't listen to anybody else. Get up on a stage and tell people, this is where we're going and everybody will follow you. And Storyful really was a story about how that myth just unraveled in front of my eyes on a daily basis. And I realized that loners um, are lonely and they're not really the people who create the change. Collaboration is so much more important than individual charisma. Uh, empathy is so much more important than charisma. So all of these things started to kind of unfold in front of my eyes and with great pain, to be honest, because changing your mindset from being somebody who takes a risk and goes out and is lonely at the front, mm. leading everybody else, is a very difficult, stressful place to be. Whereas when I started waking up to the fact that it was all about team, it was all about my ability to be empathetic, to give other people power, not keep it for myself. That's when success came, but it was at a price. So you walk in, storyful, you're excited. I met you around that time. I remember it was, it's wonderful to meet people who are excited like that. Tell me about the first year. You know, I'm just thinking at the moment, all around the world, people are going through a transition which they haven't volunteered for. So how was that? And when did you realize it's all about collaboration and team? When did that? So that first year, I mean, in fact, there was the calendar year. So I started mm -hmm. out 2010. This was just at the tail end. This is the trough after the economic crisis. So I'm going out to New York to try to sell my product to people in New York who are saying, you're from Ireland, right? Which was like kind of being in the bargain basement and you're trying to sell me something. So it was quite depressing at the time. At the same time, there was a real change happening. So the first year was, as I say, I started out I'm the lone visionary. I'm going to put this on my shoulders and I'm going to take it all the way. Now, I had been a war correspondent to an extent as well. So I knew what it was like. Nothing phased me. What's the worst can happen? I can stand in front of investors and bullshit like the rest of them. I've seen death and destruction. So it's going to be okay, right? And that's the attitude I started the year with. By the end of the year, what I realized was it was like I loved the idea that I could endure. Like if the nuclear apocalypse came, I'll survive, I'm that kind of person. Mm. And yet endurance was about getting through something, whereas I started to realize in that first year, this trick is about resilience, getting up every day knowing it's going to be as hard as yesterday, and that's okay. And finding something inside you to say, just get strong, get tough, this is a long haul. So that was the first discovery. The second was when other team members came with me. I had to essentially trust them enough to lean back and, and let them carry the business, not me on my own. Uh, and that was the second discovery. The final part was that most people as entrepreneurs don't know it, but they're led by the back of their brain. And it's in brain chemistry. It's called the amygdala. It's where your fight, flight, paranoia, fear comes from. And that inspires 99% of all your bad decisions as a business person, innovator, entrepreneur. And it comes from a fear of failure. You're gripped by the idea, I cannot fail. Uh, and I used to say to myself, failure is not an option. But that's terrible. Where you need to be is at the front of your brain. Mm. Your brain's computer, which is rational. There's no fear. You're getting up every morning going, I'm trying to get into that place where I can make a rational decision. Uh, and I started to realize the importance of things like well-being and fitness and, and getting a good night's sleep and not being emotional and feeling in my stomach 
when I was about to say something that was inspired by fear or rage or outrage. And so by the end of the year, I would got to that place. And finally, on Christmas Eve, uh, I had turned down a round of investment. And that meant the end of the company as far as I was concerned. It was really heavy snowfall that day. I'm driving down to Galway to see my family for Christmas, my wife in the car. And I admitted to her somewhere in Ballinus Low that the business was over. And she said, what's the worst can happen? We can just go back. You get a job. It's okay. And it was kind of the weight was lifted off me. Good now, by for the time I, You need your teammate. You do. And that's it. The most important part of the founding team is your partner. Yeah. Wife, husband, lover, whatever. So by the time I got to Galway, I was elated. Okay, I, I, the business has failed. I did something. I tried it. I'll never worry about that again. And of course, my lead investor, Ray Nolan at the time, he said, no, I'll give you the money. Don't worry about it. Let's go on. So the business was back on track and I had confronted the worst that could happen and it was okay. Mm, and mm. as soon as I did that, things became much easier in the second and third year because I had come up and confronted failure and it wasn't that bad and it didn't have the power over me anymore. I was now freed of that paranoia and yeah. fear and the second year then wasn't easier, but I was tougher and I was more resilient and that's where I think the, the secret happened and I could trust the people around me and they knew that. And then suddenly it was a team, not an individual. And trust is so, so important. And how do you think as a leader, how do you build trust within with your team? It's funny, we, we've talked about this between us, mm -hmm. about the difference between management and leadership. And again, leadership is celebrated and vaunted in all the great big self-help books. But actually management is, is such a skill in itself. So I'm blessed to be in this journey in Kinzen uh, with a with a co-founder and a partner in Anya Care, and Anya is very very uh, strong as a, as a leader and as a manager because she takes care of those details. I'm not as detail orientated. I can miss things. And in all the run up to the COVID uh, pandemic and then to the lockdown, Anya had been literally coming in every day, updating people every single day about what our plan A, B, and C was if things happened. So when it came to that big moment where we're all like we're not going to see each other again for months. Everybody had been prepared. Mm. There was no, you know, fear. There was there was no concern that hadn't been voiced. And even if it was different <clears throat> people with different views, they'd all been heard. So, you know, invest, I think, in the small detail. And that's the capital that will then pay off when you need to draw upon it. That's my thing about trust. Yeah, our co-founder with somebody like Anya Kerr. She <laughs> exactly. is she is super. I know Anya. Absolutely. And you know, you're in a position, Mark, where you you've been influencing people for years and, and now as an entrepreneur. Um and for you, is there anyone that has made a big impact on on you? Uh, in business or any speech you ever heard or anything like that, that? Yeah, it's funny. I don't really feel myself to be a business person, you know, and people say to me about being an entrepreneur and I'm like, I don't think that's an end in itself. I've only ever seen business or innovation or enterprise as an end to change, mm. you know, and so therefore all my heroes really are politicians, you know, and really good political leaders. And I have to say, um, Barack Obama, you know, was somebody I saw, I remember back in 2004, yeah. just before he became a public figure. And there was something about the way that he expressed the American dream in its I, purest form. I'm going to try and play a bit of that, actually, because it is, it's very powerful. For alongside our famous individualism, there's another ingredient in the American saga, a belief that we're all connected as one people. If there is a child on the south side of Chicago who can't read, that matters to me even if it's not my child. 
If there's a senior citizen somewhere who can't pay for their prescription drugs and having to choose between medicine and the rent, that makes my life poorer, even if it's not my grandparent. If there's an Arab-American family being rounded up without benefit of an attorney or due process, that threatens my civil liberties. He's amazing, isn't he? Yeah, and there's a line in that speech. That was 2004. He's, it's the first time. No one knew who he was. He yeah. was asked to nominate John Kerry for the presidency that year. And I remember he said at one point, there's no red states of America. There's no blue states of America. There's the United States of America. Mm. Now, this is before Bush, before, obviously, Trump. But for me, uh, it's not just about politics when I hear him speak. It's about this idea of, of purpose, this idea that change is really difficult. And sometimes, as an individual, you're going to lose your power, your privilege. But that's okay, because collectively, you'll get stronger. And when he talks about taking care of the weakest, the people who can't take care of themselves, it makes us, society, stronger. And for me, that is the greatest mission statement for anybody, whether you're a politician, a business person, uh, or if a, even a parent. You know, in the end of the day, Obama, for me, summed that up. And I, I can hardly sometimes not cry on a hear him because he had this amazing impact on me. Yeah. And I was just, it's fader Lynn. Yeah. Yes, we can. Si The same phrase. Um, when I went to report on him, I ended up in 2008 going to report in Nashville and Asheville, these places in the Smoky Mountains. And I remember going to a church, an African-American church, and the pastor, on the day before the election, asked us to sing together. And just still brings tears to my eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that moment I thought to myself, Jesus, we're all so much bigger than ourselves individually. Yeah. And collectively, we stood there in this church and sang, uh, you know, um, we shall overcome. Yeah. And it was three days before the election, and he, he won. And so for me, when I look back on that, I suppose partly because I do love America, my wife's American. I spent a lot of time there. Uh, I feel very transatlantic. And so that was the last time that I remember feeling the purity of that spirit um, and what American can bring. And then the value, essentially, in having a culture that's very innovative, on the edge of, of change, uh, inspiring people to do great things, but also remaining collectively a society. So that's kind of where I get like inspiration, not from Obama as the individual, the slick politician, but he was the person, I think, that perfectly encapsulated the ideals that I'd love to live by as a leader and a business person, entrepreneur, father, whatever. Yeah. Um, is, is that change is really, really good. Get your head around it, even if it threatens you. And if you can find a way to be comfortable with things never being normal and always being in flux, then that is the secret of success. And there's no better time to remind yourself than that than now. Yeah. Things are not going back to the way they were. There is no new normal. We just got to get used to the idea that it's going to continue to change. That we have to live in uncertainty. And and be okay with that. Yeah. And be okay with the idea that you get on a, on a dart, as I just did, put a mask on, and that's fine. What seems like science fiction movie is going to be in six months' time okay. You're going to yeah. get used to the idea of, of seeing people. Um, doing all these things and it'll just be like we'll forget the handshake and we'll move on to something else and that's you know scary to begin with uh, but eventually it's the thing we look back on and go do you remember when we were so scared of that and it worked out okay so I almost feel like we're kind of in our own disaster movie mm. <laughs> and we're, we survived at the end Yeah and I imagine you, would you work back in RT actually taking you back there I mean you would have seen an awful lot of uh, 
countries who had gone through, you would have been in war zones and stuff like that. So that had gone through huge change. I mean. Yeah, and I was always fascinated in the war zones, you know, in Iraq or Afghanistan or places like that, how people could live in the shadow of death but have normal lives or at least some form of normality. So, you know, I remember in, in Iraq particularly where during the lead up to the invasion, we were in northern Iraq mm. and we were at the Kurds um, and they had been gassed. They were the first victims of, of chemical weapon yeah. genocide in Halabja. They, in, uh, Iraq had invaded Saddam, had invaded them several times. And they literally lived. There were the Peshmerga were the local tribal leaders. They were the you know the people who faced death. Was that was the actual name of the army? And we would live with them. And I you know I saw people killed, and we became targets ourselves. We had friends who died um, over a period of a few weeks. You know, six or seven journalists were killed in Iraq. Friends of ours, people we knew. Um, you know, I witnessed one of those situations, and I remember the absolute fear every day going out the door, knowing when you get into the car there was a pretty much a fraction of a chance that you'd be killed or injured. And I started to realize that that was actually okay because I could do things to reduce the risk. It wasn't total uncertainty. It wasn't like driving the wrong road and you're going to get killed. You could do things like make sure you're prepared, your route. You made sure you had fuel to get back if you ran out of you know, diesel. Um, you could just train yourself not to be paranoid, not to get too stressed. And in many ways, you know, going to Iraq and Afghanistan stood me to good stead then later on when I would be in situations where I'm facing what seemed to be, you know, at least business mortality, never a serious mm. in my life. But it was, um, yeah, it taught me the difference between risk and uncertainty. You're kind of a paradox yourself because in one way you like to have be quite prepared and quite a control and feel that you've crossed off everything and in the other way I hear a huge risk taker and somebody who's a little bit reckless and a bit of a messer so it, the, a combination of the two we yeah. do, and, and definitely driven by purpose and, and, and your emotions for sure but I think again I just draw that distinction between risk and uncertainty uncertainty is doing something not knowing how it's going to turn out and having no control over that so mm. you know uncertainty is, is going and, and buying a lotto ticket you know, uncertainty is deciding, I have no idea I'm going to take that road or that road. Yeah. Risk is different. Risk is saying, now, I can actually reduce the chance that I'm going to, something bad happen to me by doing several things. Have I done them? Have I planned this? Have I got a plan B? And I think every journal uh, entrepreneur needs to have a plan A, B, C, and Z. Mm. That's the lifeboat. And you can find ways to incrementally reduce the risk of the bad happening and prepare yourself for the worst case. So that's what I've learned. Don't jump and don't, you know, think before you jump and you can turn what is, looks like a crazy decision into something that is actually quite measured. Um, like jumping out of a plane is crazy. But if you've got the parachute in the back and you know where you're landing. It's a little less crazy. Exactly. Only a little less crazy. A little right? less. So you do still have to have the ability to go, I'm jumping out of a plane. But you can do a lot of things and they're incremental, tiny, five, ten percent additional things to get yourself ready to hit the right spot in the football field rather than splatting into the building. I wonder is the difference between if you look at the leaders and managers, actually, I wonder do managers like dislike risk more than leaders? I, I, I think you like risk, Mark. I actually think you like risk. 
Yeah, well, it's a reminder you're alive. I mean, you you've know. had a ski accident, you've been in warfare, you've set up a business, you set up yeah, a second business. I, mean, I think there's a lot of mistaken distinctions between leaders and managers and we think managers is not really what you want to aspire to be but actually it is in some regards and leaders are better than managers that's not true at all not true at all but I do think the one thing a leader does have is they can see around the corner and no one else can they're like no no I can tell you in three years time everybody's going to be using an iPhone or in three years time Twitter's going to be the new service for the world and everyone's like you're nuts no 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 and then you think about it and you go okay how can I prove this to them that's when the business begins. That's when the real, uh, when the risk taker actually starts to think seriously. And then they have to learn manage, management skills because there's no point in screaming at everybody to follow you if you haven't worked out a plan to make them all part of the journey. So that's when I realized the difference between, you know, leadership and management is a manager tells everybody, I'm in charge, and everybody accepts that. A leader says, you're all part of this. You all have a role here. Yeah. And they walk out of the room going, oh, we have the power. That's that's the essential difference, I think, the positive leadership versus the sort of cautious management is managers want to keep the power and most employers are happy for someone to be taking the decisions. A leader is like, okay, you all got a hand on a lever here. You've got I, to go out I, there and do I something. I think good leaders, though, need great managers yeah. to help it. And simultaneously, they, they exactly. have to be both. Yeah. Um, and I think many leaders... Back to my point about the charismatic individual. Yeah. If you cannot sit down and learn how to shut up sometimes, and this is one of my failures, I used to talk for a living and I still find it hard sometimes in a room to just stop talking. And sometimes the act of greatest leadership is to shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's a great thing about getting a little bit older. You realise all these things and uh, you actually get to sit, sit still a little bit. Actually, I was just thinking about that, Mark. I mean, anything, I think any time I have met you or we work together, you're probably always talking about some idea. And I'm wondering, where do you do your thinking? I mean, where do you think about your ideas? Is this, do you say still or is this something, uh, singing songs in the shower? Like, where, where does it all happen? get very deep here but I'm a, I'm a very big believer in the power of walking and the power of silence sometimes so there's a great uh, Danish philosopher called Kierkegaard who said you walk yourself into a good idea and he, he just walked around Copenhagen all day and that's he came up with some of the greatest existential great city to walk around exactly yeah. and, and cycling so I think what I've really learned over the day over, over my lifetime is the great ideas just emerge out of a state of disassociation just you know not I'm going to spend this half an hour in my diary and it's got to be have this productive outcome and I know what I need to do for 3 to 4.30. Um, there's, a, there's an hour in there somewhere where you're just going to go for a walk um, and sometimes I'll stick on a stupid audiobook. I'm listening to one at the moment, a horrible paperback thriller, but I'm actually not listening to it at all. <laughs> I'm giving my brain permission to It's noise to in the background. Yeah. yeah, and it'll happen anywhere. But, but I think the most important part is, is the tactile this is one thing people miss, the tactile uh, component of, of ideas, which is you sit, we two sit together and I'll say A and you say B and we'll go C. And it's that, you know, chemistry of two people in a room together looking at each other, yeah, uh, looking at how someone's reacting and then someone else going, well, actually, if you did this, that is the most joyous moment when you suddenly have this, um, your brain, two brains start to gel together. So I think, you know, having the crazy ideas is the one thing. I do that by walking. Uh, but the way I learn is by talking with other people. So some people learn by talking, and I think that's partly what I do, is just and then listening to them and 
picking a challenge up. Um, so the only thing you have to do in that situation is stop being self-indulgent. You've got to mm. listen, be curious, um, and accept a challenge. And if someone turns into you and said, you're just crazy, sometimes you are just crazy. Yeah. Um, and you shouldn't A little bit of that. crazy is okay every so often. Yeah, as long as you have the ability to know when to turn it on and off. Yeah, yeah, that's true. In general, are you positive about the future? I mean, looking at everything that we've done, yeah. uh, everything that's happened? Yeah, listen, that's my whole, you know, the reason I'm doing what I do is because I love this idea of we are being, we've been almost like stopped in our tracks and forced to sit down and do a series of reality checks about our lives as individuals, mm. as business people. And, you know, for a long time, we preached the gospel of resilience. You know, if you're a business person, get through it. Just survive long enough, and finally it'll turn out right. There's now a second part, which is relevance and purpose. Like, mm. why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, if the world can just stop uh, in one moment almost, then I'm vulnerable. And, and the first thing you feel when you think that is fear. But mm. the second thing is, well, then nothing else matters, right? Mm. All this stuff that I was worrying about, all the small stuff, um, you know, whether I'm pissing off the boss or whether an investor's happy with me or it's all like almost irrelevant when we're faced with a global pandemic. And that's a great liberating experience. And I'm starting to see tiny, small examples of that thinking. Like there's a little cycleway now from Sutton to Dunleary and Sandy Cove in yeah. Dublin. And over the past couple of weeks, they've started to just build it. They've been talking about it for years. I'm starting to see people now uh, thinking about their own businesses and saying, well, you know what, uh, maybe I should just do something differently. Uh, and I'm starting to see people thinking about the idea that Ireland's greatest asset is solidarity, mm. is the fact that we didn't lose the run of ourselves. We all thought about other people. And it's back to that Obama quote. So this last few months has been the greatest reminder that our country's national asset is solidarity and that our own individual uh, greatest asset as people is to understand that it could all change tomorrow and if we can be okay with that and use that as a filter to look at life in a much more realistic way then I think that's going to inspire a burst of creativity that will be so much greater than back in 2008 and 9 we all just wanted to get back to normal the government told us just suffer the pain and mm. it'll be okay in a couple of years time this is different it's never going back it's all going to be about now whether we can use this burst of clarity to do something with our lives that emphasizes more and more purpose and relevance. And what we say in business, lifetime value, which means look at the way which your customer's you know, relationship is going to develop over years, because that's the real test of a business. And I think that's sometimes a good way of thinking about your life. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly what I did back in 2009 and said, in 25 years time, I could be successful on television, but I'll be dogged by the feeling I should have done something when I had the chance. Now's the chance. And that's why I feel hopeful, because there's enough people out there I know are sitting scheming, going, <laughs> God, we just had a reality check. What am I going to do now? Um, that's a great source of energy. Well, Mark, I think that is a fantastic way to end this interview. It's such a high and a great message to everybody. So it was ever a joy to talk to you. And thank you very much for sharing and being so open with us today. And thank you to all my listeners for listening. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, please do subscribe or rate wherever you um, get your podcasts. And if you're looking for any more information on Mark or you want to take a look at that Obama speech, we'll put it up on the show notes. Thank you. Thank you.